Everybody, please put hey. a thumb in the air. Hey. Broad Street Hockey Radio. That's right, BSH Radio. My name is Bill Matz. I'm your director of fun and games for the evening. Believe it or not, we have some content for you today. That's right, we're going to do a hockey show. We're going to keep it on going. Uh, we got some stuff. I can't believe it, but we do. Let's get to the introduction so we can start talking about those things. And let's lead it off with the fly by herself, Kelly Hinkle. Since we're going to do a hockey show, I figure I'll kick it off. By telling everyone that I cooked fajitas for dinner, and as a result, I smell like onions and peppers. It's not, it's not great. The smell really sticks to you. Yeah, vegetables often, when you fry them up, it's yeah. just, you're, you're in it. Yeah, so now I am in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my intro. Awesome. <laughs> and from TheAthletic.com, Charlie <laughs> O'Connor. See, Kelly, now you made me want to get Mexican food tonight. It's good. I, it, I mean, a fajita sounds amazing. And like the last time I, I had Mexican food, confirm. I ordered a quesadilla from a... This was like about a month ago. I ordered a quesadilla from a place that got really good reviews, but apparently the quesadilla is like the one thing they're not that good at. So <laughs> I was extremely disappointed in, in Mexican food, and now I want good Mexican food. And How do you fuck up a quesadilla? Uh, I mean, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't great. And apparently, like, mm. their fajitas are fantastic. And I should have just ordered that because that's, like, what their specialty is. Gotcha. I don't know the difference between a lot of Mexican food. Like, I just... A fajita and a... Uh, like, all those things sound the same to me. I don't know what the difference is. Bless your heart. <laughs> I like all it all. extremely different. It's all good food. I like it all. It's all fine. I enjoy it. That's it's YouTube. All good. When I think of YouTube guys, I think of Chinese food. Love and I Chinese don't like food. Chinese food that much, but I feel like if you two were like, hey, this is what you like, here are some things, I could, uh, I could really enjoy it. Oh, yeah. I can't, can't remember the last time I had Chinese food. I, I think I'm thinking of Steph. I just don't know what to order. I've been, since the only thing you can do is like look at Grubhub at this point, <laughs> I, uh, I searched for camel's hump. Like in Rush Hour, because that food always looks excellent. Whenever I see Rush Hour, I'm like, now that's Chinese food that looks good. Camel's Hump can't find it anywhere. Truly have no idea what that is. Yeah, I, I don't have a clue. I, I've never seen Rush Hour. <laughs> We're off to a great Rush start Hour? here. I've Maybe never seen that Rush Hour either. a future other stuff movie. Yeah, that's going to be a real soon other stuff if you've never seen Rush never Hour. Seen as long as it's on a free streaming service. <laughs> we'll do the three of us together, because I haven't seen it. Oh, that's great. What's everybody uh, so watch I learned show? a lesson today, guys. I learned Uh-oh. a lesson that all of us have learned at one point or another. Uh-oh. Never tweet. Oh. Good yes. lesson. Never tweet. Never I asked, I, I, I really, like, I filter myself very hard, especially when it comes to politics on Twitter. And I just asked a, what I thought was a non-political question, but had patriotic undertones. Uh-oh. And found myself in a 
two plus hour discussion that I it's still going on. Oh, I no. just had to leave so I could prepare this show. And man, I just uh, never tweet. Never tweet. It's a real mistake. All right, so on BroadStreetHockey.com this week and in, uh, in, in general over the next few weeks, we've been doing this thing. It's called Best Flyers Teams Not to Win a Cup. We are taking a look back at non-championship Flyers teams, and let's face it, there are quite a few of them, hmm. that probably were good enough to win a Stanley Cup, but for whatever reason... It just never really came together for them. So far, we've tackled the 96-97 team that got swept by the Red Wings, the 2009-10 team that lost to the Black that lost to the Blackhawks, and the 03-04 team that got to the Eastern Conference Final and just kind of ran out of gas because, my God, who was left that was healthy? Uh, and I just wanted to get you guys' take on this thing. Who, in your mind? is the best team in Flyers history that did not win a Stanley Cup championship. So mine, I'm going to go first because I'm sure. first. Um, I'm on the 1997 team, the 1996-97 Flyers. Um, there's probably a little bit of like, this is when I really was getting into hockey. So this was like my first real playoff run that I was super invested in. Um, so there's that and also Eric Lindros. But um, that team was, like, absolutely stacked with talent, and they had a fantastic regular season that they rolled into the playoffs and completely dominated the first three rounds until they got to the Detroit Red Wings, who absolutely just took them apart. Um, but, yeah, I, I really think that... We talked a little bit about this in the Slack chat that the Flyers teams that are really good always seem to run up against dynasties. Um, and that's, you know, exactly what happened here. The The Red Wings in 1997 were like essentially the Red Army team plus all of the other good players that were competing in the sport at the time. Like they were an absolutely ridiculous roster of Hall of Fame players. And the Flyers were just lucky enough to run into them in the final. That's it. it looking back, especially seeing like really looking at the Red Wings in the big pic, in the big picture, two years before they lose the Stanley Cup final, a year before they lose in the conference final, then they win two cups in a row. They go on to become one of the great teams of the generation and really bridge generations with their run of excellence through that time period. And it becomes much less of a quote-unquote choking situation uh, yeah. when when you look at the Red Wings in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, not just those fly, not just good Flyers teams, but running into dynasties is kind of a Philadelphia thing. I mean, <laughs> shit, man, go back to 1950 with the Wiz kids, those that Phillies team. Who do they run into? The goddamn Yankees. Like, the Sixers through the late 70s, early 80s. The Flyers, after they win two straight, they run into Montreal. Then they run into the Islanders. Then they run into Edmonton twice. The uh, the Phillies in 93 ran into Tam uh, run into Toronto, who won two in a row. Uh, the Flyers, like you said, run into the Red Wings. The Flyers in 2009-10 run into the Blackhawks. 
the Eagles run into the fucking Patriots, the Sixers run into the Lakers. It is just a string of all-time great teams that we just happen to bump into. It's pretty annoying, actually. It really is. Yeah, I think to to kick this off for me, I mean, number one, it's it's absolutely impossible for me to evaluate the teams I saw versus the teams I didn't. So, you know, people are going to lose their minds, as it seems like a lot of people did on Twitter after this. Like, how can you not say the 1984-85 team? How can you not say X team? From, like, I'm sorry. I didn't live through it. Like, they might have been better. Yeah. I don't give a shit. I didn't watch them. So, <laughs> Same. So, I'm limiting this solely to the teams that I actually watched because, like, I don't know. I'm not just going to take somebody's word for it that saw the team. And it's not like we have anything remotely resembling, like, truly not saying we don't have stats but we we don't have the kind of stats that can actually allow for an in-depth analysis of which team is better so i'm just going to go by the teams i watch and i'm going to take it go at this from kind of a different angle because it seems like you guys are looking at this as which teams were really really good they just happened to run into a better team you know a, a dynasty of whatnot the flyers you know have a tendency of doing that throughout their history you know, 2009-2010 with the Blackhawks. Obviously, they did it with the um, uh, with the Red Wings, the uh, the Oilers. They lost a cup to the, the Islanders. They lost to the Canadians in the 70s. So they, they do that a lot. I'm going to kind of come at this from a different angle and say that the, the losses that frustrate me the most aren't the ones where they lost to a clearly superior team. Like, it sucks. You got unlucky. You have it to be a great team during an era when a team was better. But I kind of go back to the Phillies. Like, so the Phillies win the World Series in 2009, or in, 2000, or in 2008. They get to the World yeah. Series in 2009. They lose the Yankees. That series doesn't bother me that much because the Yankees were just better. They were a better team top to bottom. They spent more money. They just had a better roster. It sucks they lost. It was painful in the moment. The Yankees were a better team. Then the next year, they lose to the Giants in the second round, and that series pisses me off way more than the Yankees series because the Phillies were oh, fuck- 100%. The Phillies were fucking better than the Giants, and shit yeah. just didn't break their way. And, like, I can accept losing to a better team. It kills me when I watch a team I'm rooting for lose to a, an inferior team on paper, whether it's because of injuries or just because of dumb friggin' luck. So for me, the, 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 the two series that bother me the most as a Flyers fan and two runs, the 2003-2004 team... It kills me they didn't win because to me, they just, they were the team that was like, they were selling themselves out in every way. You had Sammy Kapanen playing defense because everybody was hurt. And it just kills me because I think if you give that team Eric Desjardins and he's not hurt and he can play, that team not only, not maybe not, maybe doesn't breeze by the lightning, but they win that series probably in like six games. And then I think they win the cup too. And then also that, uh, the the 99-2000 team, the team that took the Devils to, to seven games. I, I think that team's better than the Devils. I think that team's the best team in the league that year. And everything is just all, gets all screwy because Lindros comes back and then everything falls apart. And those, to me, are the two teams that I look at and I say, what if? Because both those years, I think that top to bottom, they are the best teams of that year. And it kills me that they didn't get a cup out of one of those years. The... Uh... The 0304 team I always appreciate because it's the end of an era in like that's 
those guys last shot at at, mm-hmm. at all of it. Oh, uh, yeah, so many yeah. guys on that team where it's their last chance. Like, yeah, Desjardins gets hurt, but look at everyone else on that roster. Like, Leclerc, fucking Ronick, all those dudes. It's it's this team's last shot. Everyone knew there was going to be a lockout. We might not have known at the time because we were younger, but it just wasn't going to happen. The thing I think about that 0304 team is, like, they reached their absolute limit. Like, even if they win that game seven, fuck, man, they were out of gas. And I, yeah. it, it pains me because everyone's like, oh, we beat Calgary, no problem in that series. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, but also, that's the first team I can remember really rooting for because... Like, from the Lindros era on, all those teams, I loved them, enjoyed them, rooted hard for them, died when they got eliminated. They all sort of underachieved in our minds at the time. They were always a disappointment. And this team, with the injuries and the lack of a true superstar, there were some guys on the team who were great, but Gagne wasn't really Gagne yet. Primo's playing through uh, concussions. Ronick's old. Leclerc's old. It's a bunch of guys on their last legs Seven games in the Eastern Conference Final against a stacked Lightning team and a really good goalie in Hobby Bullen, that's about as good as they were to me. The 99-2000 team is one of those underachievers because I do believe that they were better. I don't know if they go on to beat, uh, I don't know if they go on to beat, I think it's Colorado that year. Uh, I, think, I, I think they do. That that's yeah, I mean, what, that's what kills me about it because I think they do they go up what they they went up three one in that series right or three, three they lose game one and then win three straight against the Devils yeah yeah I, I, I had I, a, I think uh, they roll I think that's their year I'm in I'm in uh, I'm in sixth grade at the time and after they go up two to one I go to my barber shop and get a Flyers logo shaved into the back of my head. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And there's a couple of Devils fans, because, you know, it's uh, I'm from South Jersey, so there's a couple defectors. Uh, and a couple of Devils fans in my grade are like, we were just screwing around for those two games. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, we'll show you. And the Flyers go up 3-1, and I'm dancing. I'm taunting <laughs> my dick off. And then, of course, everything goes awry. Lindra, I would kind of like. Th- I would like to go back and watch that series actually to try to f- figure out because I think at this point, the general thing that people do is blame Eric blame Lindros. Lindros for coming back, and somehow he ruined the entire rest of the team with his mere presence, which is just in my mind a bunch of bullshit. But I would like <sighs> to go back and watch that entire series and kind of see where it fell apart after that game three win because I I don't I mean. It's hard to remember, obviously, what was actually happening in that series. But at the time, I certainly did not blame Eric Lindros no, for that and loss. It's, it's really hard for me to blame the best player on the ice, which especially yeah. in Game 6, his first game back in how long. Like, he was absolutely dominant, scored the Flyers' only goal in my head until a couple of years ago where I saw the replay and finally proved to myself the goal, the puck went in after the horn. He scored two goals. Uh, no, for the longest time, I was like, no, that should have counted. We got screwed. And then finally, the guy, like for a Sons of Penn article, actually went ba- back and looked, and it was like, oh, no, the, the time had expired on, I think, the second period. He only scored one goal that series. <laughs> but game six, he was by far the best player on the ice, and – I always struggle with blaming Lindros because they lost game five, too. Like, they could have just put it away there, and Lindros doesn't come back, but they didn't. 
and then he does, and he's awesome. But yeah, I, it's hard for me to blame Lindros because one, I love him, and two, yeah. he's the best player on the ice. But hearing from players on that team, yeah, that's the big. It thing. did take some wind out of some sails. It really did. They were rallying around the idea. Fuck that guy. We don't need him. And then he's back. Yeah, but is that Eric Lindros's fault or is no, that their fault? No, it's not fault? his fault. No. He's... Yeah, fucking get your shit together. You're pissed off that the really, really, really good teammate that's on your team came back from injury to help you win a fucking series. If that pisses you off and you can't get over it, that's not on the guy. That's on you. There, and here's, Poor Eric Lindros. And here's Kelly, the the everlong defender of Eric Lindros <laughs> and Bill Barber. Neither one. Well. Eric Lindros particularly can do no wrong in my mind, but Bill Barber was shafted <laughs> yep. by Mark Recchi in particular, who I will blame forever for his firing, even though um, Mike told me the other day, because he wrote the, uh, he was writing up the 2003-2004 team, and um, he assured me that it was all the players hated Bill Barber, and they were kind of openly saying it in the media, which I do remember, but yes. I do also specifically remember Mark Recchi doing it more than any of the other ones. So it's his fault. That just stuck with you. <laughs> no, I, I, I think in my mind, the, uh, I, I don't, I obviously can't tell you like how big of a deal the Lindros return was in the sense of the impact that had on the locker room. It, it's, it's hard to say like, I blame Eric Lindros. Cause I don't, I wouldn't say I blame him at the same time. And this isn't his fault. Like, the minute he gets knocked out in the beginning of Game 7, the Flyers aren't winning that game. And No, yeah, no. And, that's... And, I mean, it's over. Like, Scott Stevens destroys Lindros, and then Lindros' time with the Flyers is done, and that that completely knocked the air out of, the, the wind out of, out of their sails. And, like, it's hard to say, like, well, you shouldn't have come back because obviously the hockey player is going to want to come back, but it does make you play the what-if game of, like, what if Lindros isn't in that game and doesn't get crushed to start the game, and then, you know, the Flyers can play their normal game and didn't just have to watch, like, their star player basically get carried off the ice. But that's and that's I think should have yes, won before they, that. They absolutely weren't winning after that happened. But I will never fault like that's it's tough to blame Lindros even though the circumstances kind of yeah he had something to do with it. Just his the the it, the mindset his presence created, and then once he gets knocked out, it's like well shit. But I, I it's god damn it. He's the. He's trying to make a play. Like, yeah. oh, he yeah. shouldn't have been skating across the middle of the ice with his head down. So oh, he was skating fucked. across the middle of the ice, gaining the zone to score a fucking goal against a team that we could never beat. Like, he yeah. had the only goal last game. I, God damn it. And um, then gets hit by a, a hit that today would get you fucking thrown out of hockey for the rest of your life. But let's all just gloss over that bit. Here, listen, yeah, but I would kill to have that guy. Fuck Scott Stevens. Is it illegal now? Sure. But god damn it. If we had that guy doing that to him. He'd be suspended all the time. Maybe now or then. Listen, Malcolm Jenkins lowered his head and knocked the fuck out of Brandon Cooks. And that's why the Eagles won the Super Bowl. And I ain't giving that back for anything. (laughs) (laughs) You can take that away from me when you kill me. Uh, And so I get it. It's just, it was a, like, that's. Why I'm not 
why they're not my choice is because of all those extenuating circumstances that led to they probably reached their limit because it was an underachieving, mentally weak team. Like, that's just who they were. So I wanted to take a look at some non, like, finalists who made the team. I know 03-04 didn't get there. Uh, like, 96-97, that's an all-time great team, just didn't do it. 09-10, my God, if they win two more games that season, imagine the trajectory of this franchise, how it changes. Like, think about how things go. Even if the next year goes exactly as it went, if they win two more games in 09-10, it's insane. But I just wanted to look at a couple of other teams because I think it was Les Bowen on Twitter gave us some shit like uh, when we did a poll about which team was the best that never won and like it went only as far back as 96-97. And it was like one of those okay boomer moments. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, and like, I, listen, I love Les Bowen. I think Les is really good. But it's like, yes, we are all this old. I'm sorry we didn't see the 80s teams, but we didn't. Yeah, so um, here's the thing, just to as an aside. I'm the one who put that poll out. And I very specifically didn't go back that far because, A, like a solid five-sevenths of our audience was not alive when these games were being played. Like, not even just not old enough to watch them. Like, straight up not born yet. And also... If we're talking about writing articles that have any kind of depth or meaning to them about yeah. these teams, it's kind of hard to find stats on the 1985 Philadelphia Flyers that can be useful. Like, maybe you can find some plus minus or something, but, like, what the hell are you supposed to write about a team where you can't watch the videos, you don't have any stats? Like, what are you going to write? Yeah, they were good. Okay. No, and that's, like, in putting my notes together for this, like, the notes I have are all we could possibly put in an article about right. these teams. Because, like, you can't even watch the games. I was watching something from 06 today that looked closer to 1976 than 2020. Like, you can not you can barely fucking see it. And it's Peter Forsberg. Like, <laughs> you know, he was playing when I was in college, I think. So, But the, uh, my, the first one I wanted to point out is a more recent. And it's the 2010-11 team. Because mm. it's the exact same team as the year before. But Pronger is hurt. And they have a good goalie who just happened to, you know, have a couple of bad games. But that 2010-11 team, man, like, they're in the same position, but second in the conference instead of seventh, as they were the year before. They have Bobrovsky, and it just, they all kind of hated each other, so it didn't work out. It all fell apart at the end of the year. They barely got by Buffalo, and then got swept by the Bruins, who they had the great comeback on the year before. I guess you can say... They should have never had that comeback the year before, and the Bruins were righting or wrong, but that team was as good as the, any this this franchise has ever iced, except for the team I'm going to point out as the best ever to never win a Stanley Cup. Maybe in fucking league history, honestly, unless you oh. want to like break down the Red Wings and Avalanche rivalry, and every year one of them won it and the other didn't. Probably they're the best. But the 79-80 Flyers... 35 straight without a loss. Granted, that includes, you know, some ties and stuff. But 35 straight without losing, they still have Clark and Barber. Uh, there was rookie Brian Prop, Bob Kelly's last year with the team, Rick, McLeish, Rick McLeish's second to last year here. Overall, seven players in the Flyers Hall of Fame are on that team. Paul Holmgren scored 30 freaking goals and a Stanley Cup final hat trick. Uh... They have the perfect combination of all the Broad Street Bullies greats and the beginning of what became 
the next wave of awesome flyers in the 80s, the only thing really holding them back, no Mark Howe, no Tim Kerr, and no Lindbergh or Hexie in net yet. That's just looking at what they accomplished. They would have won what was the President's Trophy at the time, as would have the 84-85 Flyers, who also lost in the final. But they ran into the fucking Islanders, who won their first of, I think, four straight that year? Yeah, that was the, uh, that was the Leon Stickle series, when he blows, yes. the, he blows the offsides call in Game 6. And the Flyers lose the game, at least in part, because of his uh, his bad call that I believe he, like, I think after the game, he admits he blew it. And it's like, yeah, that's going to make Flyers fans feel so much better. <laughs> Sorry. I'd rather, I'd rather you claim ignorance and be like, nah, yeah. I, did, I made the right call. I'd rather you lie to me than go back retroactively and be like, nah, I screwed it up. Like, oh, thanks. Cool. I'd rather not be able to blame the officials. Agreed. Yeah, it's really hard I, I imagine it's really hard to argue for a team other than the team that took the Oilers to seven games with Hextall because that was like the Oilers in their absolute prime. It just, it, I, I couldn't tell you how good that team actually was on paper, but just like the idea that you take the, the Edmonton Oilers to seven games when they're at their peak is still is pretty ridiculous. It's a team with like 3% of the Hall of Fame on its roster. Yeah, right. Uh, another team I did want to point out, just because they weren't a Stanley Cup finalist, so they might not get any love. And it was a lockout-shortened season, so not everyone remembers it for what it was. The 94-95 team. Uh, much like the 07-08 team, they went from missing the playoffs to making the conference finals, but then what, ran into that one obstacle team and lost in six games. Uh, it was the Penguins in 07-08. It was those goddamn Devils again in 94-95. The uh, Lindros was the MVP and led the league with 70 points. The uh, The Flyers won the division. They won the Atlantic division by eight points and six wins. In the second round, they swept the defending champs, uh, the New York Rangers, like 4-0, just beat the shit out of them, and then ran into those goddamn Devils. They, in three home games, because they ha- had home ice advantage, they were outscored 12 to 5. They were outshot in the series 180 to 119. And for you two who argue with me all the time, Marty Brodeur overrated. The Flyers, I don't think, ever had more than 25 shots in the series. Um, the Flyers, yeah, they don't, the fewest they allowed was 24. Like the average was like 28 19 or something like that. They just could not break through the devil's trap. And then they would have run into goddamn Florida in the Stanley Cup final. <laughs> that is an amazing freaking team. Ron Hextall actually had a better save percentage in the series 884 to 880 for Marty. It was, uh, they chased Marty in one of the games in Jersey, but they just didn't win a home game. They went 0 3 and got killed in all three games. God, I hated the Devils in the 90s. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't explain Christ. how much I despise those Devils teams. And it, it's like, in part, because the Flyers always lost them, but that's probably 60% of it, but a very strong 40% of it is just how utterly ugly they made hockey. I'll yes, never, they I'll never fucking the ruined point. the game. No. Completely ruined the game, and also Marty Brodeur is overrated. Uh, not, no, they would not have run into Florida in the final. I'm sorry, that would have been uh, the next year. This was, this was, uh, 
the Red Wings, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah no, I fucking... They're the bane of my childhood. They were always the team. Like, this is the first series I remember watching, like, all my friends getting together and watching hockey, and then it just became, we can't even get a shot on net. What? They just have the puck. We just can't get through the fucking neutral zone. Like, in some of these games, the Flyers, yeah, in game four in Jersey, they chased Marty with four goals on 17 shots. In the games they were able to break through, they won. They just never broke through. It was unfreaking believable. And then two years later, they end up, you know, doing the same thing. Yeah, there it, is... It, a couple years later. There, there is no, like, there's no point where enough bad things could happen to the Devils franchise where I would feel like, okay, it's good. They've made up for, for ruining hockey. Every single bad thing imaginable could happen to the Devils franchise, and I'd still be like, yeah, that's karma for ruining hockey for 10 years. Thanks, New Jersey. Yeah. Now, my um, my hatred for Ottawa has just taken taken on a life of itself. <laughs> but yeah, Ottawa and New Jersey are the only two teams. Like, I can't come up with some reason to if something's going on. They're the only teams I can't come up with something to root for about them. Like the the Pittsburgh Ottawa Eastern Conference Final. Yeah, I'd rather just see Pittsburgh get into the Stanley Cup because they're a good team, and that means it'll be better hockey. Yeah, they're the. I I, I wouldn't go that far on, far on Ottawa, but I understand <laughs> where you're coming from. I just hate him, man. Your so Ottawa hate is always going to make me happy. It's so funny. I just hate him, man. Havlat still hanging out in the press or still hanging out in the penalty box, hiding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what I want to get into now, because I think like all right, so I what's everyone's final answer? Because mine is seventy nine eighty. Yours is 0304, Charlie, and yours I'm is 96, with 97, Kelly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't All even know if that's so my answer. We... That's just that's just the one that killed me the most. Yeah. No, and listen, it's a fun exercise. There's no right or wrong answer because I don't know who would have won what. Like, if like in the, my 2010-11 argument, simply comes down to if they didn't all hate each other and Pronger was healthy, they win the cup. But <laughs> yeah. it just wasn't. So neither of those things were true. Uh, let's move on now. So there was an article about, uh, I think Craig wrote it on Broad Street Hockey, and it's Elaine Veen, and it was basically, I was wrong about Elaine Veen. No, it was Brad. Oh, no, it was Brad. Brad. Oh, it was Brad. Yeah, this was Brad. And we had varying degrees of excitement. You all, I was all aboard the Quenville train, and I learned to really like Elaine Veen. Yo, and then, of course, the season started, and now he's one of my favorite people in hockey, ever, maybe. Um... What have we learned about Elaine Vigneault and, like, how do your feelings about him on, you know, this date differ from how they were 12 months ago when he was hired? So for me, I, I, I guess it's just a matter of knowing now. Um, there was a lot of unknown when he was hired because um, I think as, I think Charlie broke down. Didn't you, Charlie, the two, the kind of the ways that he coached in New York versus Vancouver yeah yeah so there was the fact that we knew going into it that he coached two different teams pretty differently and he hadn't coached in a little while so we weren't really sure what we were going to get um and also like you said Bill there was still a little bit of sting that we got rejected by the guy that everybody wanted and there was a whole lot of well now we got the backup guy how's this going to go um so I just knowing now what he is is a level of comfort 
that I just didn't have when I didn't know what we were going to get from him. Also, he rolls. Yeah, I mean, the point I made, and again, I was coming at this maybe more optimistic than I think a lot of people, particularly in like the Twittersphere, the Flyers Twittersphere were. Um, I was coming at it more optimistic because I watched a lot of his Canucks teams. And I loved his Canucks teams. I, I, I watched a ton of them because one of my probably my best friend in college was a Canucks fan. And we watched a ton of games because the Flyers would play at seven. The, the Canucks would play at 10. So, like, just come over and they, they, the Flyers would play an early game and the Canucks would play in a late game. And just basically watch hockey for, for six hours. It was great. And I really liked the way they played. I really liked Vino. I liked, you know, his his strategies. I liked his, uh, his tactics. I liked just the style that those teams played with. And then in New York, you were just constantly bombarded with, you know, more and more bad things from New York fans complaining. Now, granted, yeah. I do have the opinion that the, uh, the, the, the New York Rangers Twitter people are insane um, <laughs> for the most part. And I think they are so, like, they're so relentlessly negative that they apparently convinced themselves that Elaine Vigneault was an actual sociopath, which was insane. Um, so that was probably part of it. But there were a lot of things that he was doing in New York that objectively weren't incredibly smart, like Dan Girardi being joined at the hip to Ryan McDonough for like four straight years and then picking Anton, then picking Girardi to resign over Strawman, even though Strawman was very clearly the better defenseman by the numbers, just things like that, that, you know, you, you looked at it and you were worried the same thing's going to happen here. And what's been really cool about Vigneault, at least in year one, is that he he very much reminds me of the guy that I liked in Vancouver. Just the mm-hmm. the attitude, the style of play, the way he's he seems to be connecting with his players. It's just it's very much reminiscent of everything I liked about him when he coached the Canucks. And that's what to me has been, I guess what I've learned most is that I don't know what happened in, in New York, but so far I've absolutely seen the Vancouver Vino, and it's been great. And I, I don't want to like defend Listen, I didn't pay enough attention to New York to know exactly what was going on up there. But yeah, like when you talk about uh, Girardi and McDonough, it's like, all right, one of those guys is pretty good and one of them probably isn't. But I, it seems to me he's pretty logical and gets the most out of whoever he puts out there. I've seen a lot of guys, even just in the abbreviated season we saw out of him, guys I don't even think that highly of maybe playing better than I expect them to, a la a Robert Haig and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but what I really appreciate about him, and it has nothing to do with on a strategy or anything that really affects, I guess, wins and losses, is it's so refreshing to have a coach with some fucking personality. <laughs> is that like, what you appreciate Charlie, about him? That's what I appreciate about you, Elaine. Um, <laughs> now, Charlie, listen, you're there day to day and everything. I haven't been in a little while, but I was there. Uh, in the middle of Hackstall's tenure, and I gotta tell you, I stopped going to the press conferences because it was a goddamn waste of time. Like, Craig Berube, I just looked at, and I was like, is this really the guy in charge of Claude Giroux's prime? And like, I held that against him more than anything. I didn't think he was a bad guy. I didn't even know how good of a coach he was or wasn't. It was just like, this team's not that good, and I don't know if he's the coach for them. But watching Hackstall... He, I was like, your team sucks and you bore me to death. But shit, if I don't want to have a martini with Elaine Vigneault. He just seems like a genuine dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's he's definitely a lot of fun to cover. And th- the thing with Hack is that 
I, I he never really got a handle on showing his personality publicly, and I do he, he I do think he has one, and I do think that like if you're just talking about him as a person, I think he's a, a good guy. It's just that for whatever reason he chose to be very very guarded, and that was. And then add in the fact that the team wasn't that good and add in some of the moves he was making. It just, it turned into this big, giant ball of suck. And everyone just decided they hated him. Whereas with Vino, it's funny, you know, kind of going back to uh, the Rangers fans again. Um, like one of the complaints, I think one of the one of the Rangers bloggers did a story on BSH, like right after the Flyers hired Vino and Steph invited him on and he just spent like, 1500 words just absolutely ripping Vino for everything and one of his complaints was that and the and the local media won't even give him shit because he treats them well so they won't even criticize for anything and that's when you start getting into like conspiracy theory bullshit however it is fair to say that he does treat the local media well and it's you know just like little things like you know you know, making jokes and throwing out some quotes that are like, that'll write your story for you. Like, I don't do a daily story, but it absolutely endears you to, to beat writers when beat writers go in, you know, go down to the locker room after practice for, you know, one day and maybe there isn't an obvious story. And then Vigno says something kind of off the wall and it's like, well, there's my 600 word story for the day. Like, we're done. And once in a while, I feel like a coach that, has the understanding of sort of how to play the media in a sense knows that sometimes you just have to do that because just just throw them some fresh meat or whatever and i i think he probably you know when you're a coach for what 15 15 years i don't know how many years he's coached in the nhl probably close to 15 at this point i would assume because he had those couple years in montreal yeah. then he had the years in vancouver then the years in new york you'll learn how to you learn how to manage the media. And I don't think Hack ever truly knew how to manage the media, at least from an NHL standpoint, whereas Elaine Vigneault very much knows how to manage the media, both in terms of making himself popular with the media members, and also he knows exactly how to get exactly what message he wants across to the media members. Like there, One thing I, I've learned in postgame is that the first couple questions you ask him, regardless of what the question is, like I could ask him, you know, what what did you think of your goalie's performance? And he'll throw maybe like a half a sentence. If he doesn't want to talk about his goalie, but he wants to talk about the fact that he thought the team didn't play well in the second half of the game, he'll be like, yeah, you know, Carter had a good game. And, and then he'll just go on to a spiel that eventually ends up with him getting to the exact message that he wants to be the centerpiece of the story that the media members write. And after a while, you pick up on it, and then you, you like, at least I try not to fall into the trap of, of just rewriting exactly what Vigneault wants the media members to write. But it becomes very clear that, like, he goes up to the podium after every game, and he has a narrative that he wants the main narrative of the game to be. And he's going to do whatever he can to make sure that's front and center to everybody in the media. And that's something that, like, as a head coach, you learn over time. You learn that ability to, you know, I have my message, and I'm going to do what I can to make that the main message. And I don't think Hack ever fully... I'm sure he got it on some level, but he never got good at it. And Vino is very clearly very good at that. Well, a couple of, like, first with Hack, just, like, if you're from North Dakota or coming from coaching in North Dakota for as long as he did, given our reputation, whether it be media, fan base, 
you know, just the area in general, yeah, I can see being guarded, like being a a, a, North, a North Dakota guy, like, and then coming into this this goddamn like dragon's pit. That would be tough. Elaine Vigneault, while yeah, endearing yourself to the media and all that, might not like on the surface. It's like, well, that's not a skill. If I had Bill Belichick, I wouldn't complain, you know, about having a coach who didn't endear himself to the media. But I will say, having the ability to get your message across the way he does and endear yourself to different personalities, that does kind of speak to his ability to control the locker room and be able to criticize a guy like Jake Voracek or Kevin Hayes and them go, no, I, I still like Elaine. He's a good dude. Like, well, I, think, I think those things are kind of related, and that's something I've learned about him that I didn't know 12 months ago. Well, I, I just think that Hack and... Vigneault are just fundamentally oh, different wildly, people. Yeah. Like, I don't think that, like, Dave Hackstall isn't, like, a, he's, like, a very sharply angled bird, whereas, like, Elaine Vigneault <laughs> is, like, a loose, fun, like, charming dude that you want to go have martinis with because he's got fucking stories and you know he's fun, whereas Dave Hackstall, you're, like, maybe he could, per, you know, like, pick up my prescription at the pharmacy for me. Like, he's just not a fun... He's not a fun person outwardly. So they're just different people. And and if you have the kind of personality that Vigneault has, you just kind of naturally are able to form those connections with people. And it is a skill that you cultivate, but I just think that he's that guy. And Hack is not that guy. He never would have been. Which is probably why he's not a great NHL coach. And, you know, I think that that's something that you have to be able to have. You have to be able, like Bill said, to get the room to like you. And Hackstall was never going to do that. Even if it's not like, just like... Respect. Respect and understand. Like, right. Realize where he's coming from. All right, everybody. After now, we have uh, rehashed the Hackstall thing for the... Every time. <laughs> it's, it's really hard not to fall into it. Like, I know. We spent so much time in the history of this show complaining about <laughs> oh All right, But right now, we are going to take a little break. And then what we're going to do is go back in time. Uh, I saw some articles on the uh, on both on Broad Street Hockey and Charlie. You wrote an article on the Athletic that was kind of looking back at your preseason predictions. So what I did, I listened to BSH two twenty five and Kelly listened to BSH episode two twenty six. These were preseason episodes during uh, training camp and all that, where we made predictions. We uh, just had ideas and takes about the upcoming season. Well, we're gonna see how wrong we were on the other side of this break. All right, everybody, we are back, and it is time to uh, take a look back at what we said early in the season and compare it to how things worked out. Like I said, Charlie, I saw you did an article about your preseason predictions. The thing we just talked about was inspired by the I was wrong about Elaine Vigneault, and so I figured why not steal those ideas and put them on our podcast, and uh, (laughs) I'm going back to BSH episode number 225 from mid-September, and it was titled, Back That Ass Up, uh, because we were... Wonderful. We were enamored. We were enamored with Kevin Hayes' puck protection skills. Ah, yes. I'm going to lead it off. We are talking with... uh, We're talking about the contracts that Travis Konechny and Ivan Provorov... Ivan Provorov signed, uh, you know, into training camp. They had those little... Uh, they had those episodes where they not holding out, but they were not yet signed and training camp had begun or was about to begin. 
and we're talking about what those contracts look like after they sign them. I said TK's number, talking about his cap hit, seemed a little high, but if he starts producing a little bit more, it's very reasonable. Um, yeah, turned out to be quite reasonable, huh? <laughs> yeah. Fucking nailed that one. Uh, Charlie, I really liked your takes on this one because you called it fair, uh, and it shows the Flyers have faith in Travis Konechny becoming a core player. And it's funny to go back to just September yeah. and think, this guy's good. We like this player a lot. But thinking about what we – we knew the production, we knew the potential, but is he a core piece or is he a guy who scores some goals on a good line like a Braden Shen? And what we've talked about TK lately, shit, man, he became much more than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these contracts look good. It, the one thing that kind of sucks, and obviously there's no way that this could have been predicted, is that – there's a chance they end up not looking as good as they probably should because well, that's... Of, of the cap situation, the fact that the cap might be stagnant for quite a while because of coronavirus. But the contracts still look very good, especially because Connecty was basically a point-per-game guy this year. You also have in here, and this was my, my concern about yeah, giving yeah. Connecty what I consider to be a fair deal, was just that I wasn't sure if the Flyers were going to— like. The Flyers were essentially going to get any surplus value out of the deal because I wasn't sure if Konechny would be able to break out numbers-wise if he wasn't on power play one. Well, lo and behold, they found a way to get him on power play one without having to get Jake off the top power play unit, and they went with an intriguing idea, which is, well, let's just use Konechny as like sort of a net front guy, but also run other plays so he's not just a net front guy. And shit, over the last month and a half of the season, it, it seemed to work, and if TK is on that top power play unit and he's still the same super efficient five on five scorer that he was this year, then yeah. I mean, then, then this contract is absolutely looking like a big bargain. He looks like an $8 million a year player. Yeah. And I no, that was one of the things I really enjoyed is because you, uh, you talked about how you never thought, Oh, you weren't sure if TK was going to be able to break out, uh, production wise, while Jake is still here because of opportunities on the first power play. And we just talked last episode about how they were able to finally figure out a way to get TK on that, uh, on that top power play unit. And it seems finally, it took most of the year, but it seems finally they have something that was really working and building up steam. And now the numbers will reflect just how good he is if he maintains this level of play. Yeah, you you guys really nailed this one. The, uh, the thing the thing we talked about though, and this was a, a running theme throughout the episode. Man, we loved Sanheim coming off of the season he had last year, and we were we all kind of said it would have been better if TK got the bridge and Sanheim got the long term deal, just because of how much we thought Sanheim was going to cost in the future, and TK might you know, kind of level out, especially without the opportunity on the first power play, that even if Travis Konechny was an awesome 5-on-5 player and became the guy we thought he was just in terms of overall ability, his production wouldn't equal his talent and we would maybe be able to still get him out as a, get him as a bargain while Sanheim, shit, he might end up making more than Proverov when this thing's all said and done. 
in defense of past us, um, it is, you know, possible that this year for Konechny was like a bit of a blowout year that he won't have again. Um, and it's also possible that Travis Sanheim has an outstanding couple of years and we have to pay him a lot of money. I don't think those were unreasonable takes at the time, um, but it is super nice to be wrong about Konechny in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I think that Sanheim, you know, maybe Sanheim didn't have the holy shit year that we were maybe hoping he was going to have mm-hmm. as a as a follow-up to what was a legitimate breakout the year before. But I, I do want to make it clear, I don't think Travis Sanheim has had a bad year. I think Travis no. Sanheim's been good. I think he's been a perfectly solid, above-average, second-pair defenseman. It's just he didn't take that that gigantic leap, and maybe that was on us for being a little bit too optimistic about him. But I feel like once once that Meyer-Sanheim pairing kind of fell into place, I guess that probably would have been like maybe late January is when they really started to click. They were really freaking good. And that's a that's a really exciting thought for Flyers fans. If, even if Sanheim never becomes a first pair defenseman, if he just becomes the super awesome second pair defenseman, they're still going to have to open the checkbook up for him. I mean, shit. Like, I really like Tory Krug, but like, what is Tory Krug? Is Tory Krug like an amazing num- an amazing number three? <laughs> and he's probably going to get like eight mil in free agency. Yeah. So oh, yeah, if he if he hits like if he signs a Boston friendly extension, maybe it's not eight mil. But my God, yeah, as a number three, if he hits the open market, do not be surprised by eight. Yeah. So if Sanheim is just this, which is a really good number three, who maybe as he gets older starts getting more power play time and adds to his point totals a little bit, like yeah, I think they will eventually have to really open the checkbook to keep Travis Sanheim. That said, he didn't have the gigantic breakout that we were hoping for and the gigantic breakout that Travis Konechny did have. No, it was like Sanheim, um, I thought he had a very disappointing start to the season, but yeah, really started to turn it on as things, as the whole team did. But once he gets paired with Myers, we see, okay, this is this this is what these two are going to be going forward. And I said, accept the ups and downs and enjoy them. And they became a very good second pair. Uh, it was just, man, those scoring numbers without any substantial power play time whatsoever, uh, the previous season led people to think, oh, my God, imagine, like, could he be a 60-point defensive? Could he be as productive as Ghost but better in the defensive <laughs> zone? And those things might still be true. Like, we haven't seen what Sanheim's going to ultimately be. He's a little older than you think. Uh, yeah. But he's still he's still growing into his role in the NHL. I just, like, listening to what we thought about Sanheim in September – I think he has had the most disappointing season out of anybody. And that's not fair to him. We just, like, Kelly, for a while, was Listen. like, he's better than Provorov. And Provorov just happened to have an incredible bounce-back season. Yeah, I mean, again, in past Kelly's defense, Provorov had an absolutely terrible year last year. Oh, none of us disagreed with you. So. None of us were like, you're nuts, <laughs> Kelly. No, that's fucking stupid. Like, we were all like, yeah, could be. <laughs> Steph had a really good one, and in, like in in past Steph's defense, none of us knew Kevin Hayes yet. Yeah, so we hadn't seen. Oh, he's the only player on the team who with personnel. Like, there's other guys. I'm not saying that, but he was 
the number one featured guy on everything in terms of PR-wise all summer. As soon as they signed him, it was the Kevin Hayes. He It was like, he okay, here's our new guy. Buy some jerseys, which, you know, I don't doubt. I don't blame them for. But Steph says... She's getting sick of seeing Hayes everywhere. <laughs> Give me not Hayes. Like on every tweet, on every promotional item. And uh, then we just got into a, like talking about his game, and that's where the back that ass up title came from. But it's very funny to see how before we knew Kevin Hayes, we're like, enough of this shit. And now, is there anyone you want to hear from other than Kevin Hayes? I mean, yeah, TK. <laughs> but other than him, like I don't care if nobody else ever talks. No, I don't think anybody expected us to love Kevin Hayes this deeply so soon. <laughs> but he's an I, absolute It also treasure. helps that, like, Kevin Hayes also never shuts up. So yeah, yeah. You, you don't, that is true. We, we don't have to pine for him to stop talking because he's never going to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, you had a really good one that was, uh, it's just something real simple, but you said... This is a significantly better slash deeper team on paper than the previous season. Well, if nothing else is true, that is. It sure is. Yeah, that was something that, that drove me up the wall um, with with people going into this year. And, like, oh, look, I understand there was reason, there was legitimate reasons to be skeptical of the Flyers. The Flyers had a 21-year-old starting goalie. The Flyers traded for two defensemen in uh, Matt Niskanen and Justin Braun who were coming off not good seasons. Like, there were reasons to be skeptical, but if you looked at the team on the whole, you're like, okay, the Flyers have a third line or a fourth line going into the season. This is before we, we knew about Nolan Patrick. This is obviously before the Oscar Limbaugh cancer diagnosis. But the Flyers went into the season projected to have a fourth line of Michael Roffel, Scott Lawton, and Tyler Pitlick. And they projected probably to have James Van Riemsdyk on your third line. And, like, teams that have James Van Riemsdyk on their third line are damn good teams. That's part of the reason why Toronto, when they had him, were so good. Because they were able to stick a 30-goal scorer on a third line. Teams that have above average bottom sixers on their fourth line tend to be very good teams that start the year with Shane Gossesbear as a third pair defenseman tend to be pretty good like once once the Flyers showed once Carter Hart showed that he wasn't going to suck in his sophomore season and once Niskanen and Braun showed that they weren't cooked there was no reason to believe the Flyers were going to be bad and it's I think it took most of the national media and most of people that weren't close to paying attention to this team it took them way longer than it should have to realize the flyers were legit because they still had in their heads like well they're mediocre it's like no the flyers had a few very obvious questions and once they were all answered and they were all answered probably by like mid-november there was no reason to doubt the flyers as a playoff team uh you no know, that's yeah that's we it was basically a season of well if this is how we think it is, and it was. Like, we got into a discussion here about the depth, and I made a point, like, watching early in the preseason, hey, if there are, like, injuries or questions in the bottom, you know, the fourth line, bottom six, third pair, whatever, there are going to be some good players to call up, and we saw that pan out, you know, in the first couple of weeks of the season, first couple of months of the season. But one thing I really liked here uh, that I said, uh, well, we'll get to this first. We, we all really liked the germ early in preseason, but Charlie did say, listen, Rubstov is playing well, uh, but this is like 80% of his ceiling. 
while we're looking at Farabee, and I think he has more of uh, just potential to impact this team because he already looks like he belongs, and we're seeing 30 to 50% of what he really is. And I thought that was a great point in comparing where they went from there. It was pretty cool. And then we talked about, like, David Kacha and uh, Maxime Shushko, and we saw Kacha. He came up, scored a goal. We saw a lot of this. Man, we were really concerned about Chris Stewart and Curtis Gabriel. We sure like, were. <laughs> we spent well, we a did, lot of time. We did time. have to watch Chris Stewart for an extended period of time. We Maybe spent not. a lot of time on uh, on Chris Stewart. A lot. But we did, even back then, when we had no idea what was going on with Nolan Patrick, there was concern. Uh, we talked about who's the 3C, what the hell happened to Nolan Patrick. I made the comment, I wasn't awake yet. And suddenly he's designated as injured. They hadn't at the time ruled out. Well, they said, like someone asked, have you ruled out surgery? And they said, no, not at this time. They gave us fucking nothing. Nothing. On (laughs) what his injury. I mean, they still really haven't. But at least we know it's migraines now. But we had no idea. We're like, oh, he'll be ready like a week into the season. We were, uh, on the episode that I listened to, we were still going over this, and uh, we were, like, straight up conspiracy theorying. Like, we somehow got into a conversation about how it couldn't be his shoulder because he was in a golf tournament. Yeah. Um, Like, there was just a lot of trying to figure out what was going on with him before we knew anything. And a lot of, I think... There was nothing else we could do. That's true. we We were getting nothing, and, you know, even as someone in the media who was really keeping my ear to the ground, like... You were getting you're getting like little tidbits, but it wasn't anything concrete, and it certainly wasn't anything that like was anywhere near being able to report anything. You know what I mean? Like the, the mm-hmm, Flyers yeah. kept this very very close to the chest, and you know we didn't find out until the very very end of the preseason when uh, when Fletcher gathered us all in the uh, in the press box at Madison Square Garden, and finally was like, yeah, we diagnosed him with a migraine disorder. Yeah, it was, we're still talking, like, is it a concussion? Is it a neck thing? I said, I think he needs LASIK surgery, and then we talked <laughs> about how it's, it might be like Rick the Wild thing. Vaughn, Charlie? Yes, so, yes. Now I'm just recapping the episode, but go back and listen to 225. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we ended up comparing maybe, because I asked, do we think he's going to reach his potential, Nolan Patrick? We compared him to Coots early in his career, the difference being, like, Coots played with Matt Reed and Zach Ronaldo. Nolan Patrick has had mostly uh, mostly good line mates throughout this time. And I decided to look up what Matt Reed's been up to. Uh, he, in, 13, in like basically a full season in the AHL, 13 goals, 25 points for the Marlies. So he's still doing it, Matt Reed, even though it's down in the AHL. Plug good it for all. him. And, Charlie, you made the final point. Heart is the reason to be excited, if for no other reason. Do we want to get to 226, or do we just want to save it for next week? Because we got to do this all over again in a week. We can save it. Stretch that content out, baby. We've gone 57 minutes, so it's not like we're short. All right, we have, and I do want to get to this, because I always like to make Charlie explain himself. (laughs) Uh, Charlie on TheAthletic.com wrote a piece, the 10 best trades of the 2010s, the Flyers' 10 best trades of the 2010s. Charlie's doing what all good beat writers are doing right now, making lists. You're a genius, (laughs) bud. Uh, Gotta love it. ah, You're doing good. They're well-reasoned, but uh, listen. You, yeah, you give you give great reasons for everything on this list. The Flyers, Ron Hextall, 
Uh, while he did not improve the NHL product a little bit during his tenure, he made some great moves for the future, and he made some great moves to set up the future. However, not listing Zach Ronaldo for a third-round pick. <laughs> I don't care if they made, instead of making the pick, Ron Hextall FaceTimed in while taking a dump and said, nah, we, we concede the pick, whatever. Getting anything for Zach Ronaldo is the greatest trade maybe in the history of the NHL. Explain so yourself, Charlie. And it was on the list. It was like yeah, number six, clear. I think. Yeah, it is on the list. I ranked it sixth. And Amazing trade. He's oh, it was bad. It was incredible. And I think the best part about it, because this was something that was really fun to go back and, and remember, it was that trade like concluded one of the best acquisition-related heaters I've ever seen a GM be on. Because in a single <laughs> week, Ron Hextall drafted Ivan Provorov, traded up for Travis Konechny in the first round to get him, then the next day found a way to trade Nick Grossman and Chris Pronger's contract for Sam Gagne at a draft pick. And then two days later, he trades Zach Ronaldo for a third-round pick. Like, I just remember that run and everyone, like, that was, that was the... That was when it, the whole, like, in Hextall we trust thing got started. Because it was just every day he was coming up with his another brilliant maneuver that was making the Flyers look better on paper and just getting people more excited about the direction the team was going. And I really do believe that that's part of the reason why, you know, people took longer to turn on Hextall. Because a mm -hmm. lot of it was just residual from that one incredible week of general managing. No, and it, it was it was a great. He made some great moves. Uh, and you lay it out in your article. Uh, but what what is the best trade he made? Because the Ronaldo one, shit, man. So I, I mean, that was great. It's just it was just a third round pick. That was the big thing. Like it was a great trade, and it's hilarious that he was able to convince Boston to take him for a third round pick. It's only a third round pick. Kirill Ustamenko is like a decent prospect. He's nothing that's game-changing, but even just looking at it from a pure value not yet. standpoint. Not yet. Yeah, you and your Belarusians. Back Russians. up in the future, baby. There we go. <laughs> um, but, like, a third-round pick isn't a, a game-changing return. My my favorite trade that would I rank number one for Hextall, uh, and it was my number one on the, on the whole for the list, was the, the trade deadline deal when he trades Braden Coburn to Tampa. Because, to me, that's a trade where it was almost like he did two trades in one. He trades Coburn, yeah. and he gets Radko Gudis, who ends up being better than Coburn was going to be in the back half of the decade. And then, in addition, he gets a first-round pick and a third-round pick, and that first-round pick, after they, they include a second-round pick they got in the team and in deal, they use that to trade up to get Konechny. So you basically, in that trade, you, you trade away Braden Coburn at Tampa Bay, and you get a better Braden Coburn, and then you get the ability to get Travis Konechny. And... Braden Coburn, like, to get a useful roster player and a first-round pick for Braden Coburn at that point in his career, like, that was that was a dramatic overpay even at the time from Tampa. Like, that was—I think Braden Coburn had nine points that year, and you got a first-round pick and a useful roster player for him. That was, that was an amazing trade at the time. And because I, I remember—I specifically remember I was in San Francisco when that trade was announced because that weekend was going to be— um, 
It was going to be my friend's bachelor party that I was running. We ended up going to a Sharks game. It was a lot of fun. Um, but I was there early because I was setting everything up. And that tree got announced. And I just remember laughing out loud. I was staying in my friend's apartment. And I was laughing out loud because, like, how the fuck did they get a first-round pick and more for Braden Coburn? Like, that was one of those trades that was brilliant at the time. And then it only worked out even better because Gudis was better than we thought he was going to be. And they turned that first-round pick into, as we were talking about earlier today, a core player and Travis Konechny. That's, and uh, if you can, like you said, it was like making two trades in one. If you can combine the Coburn and Tiemann trades, because to me that's what they did, like using yeah. one of those second-round picks and then to move up so they could get TK, like looking at it all combined, that's his best work because, you know, you did all those things. Coburn wasn't anything special. Tiemann's on his last legs, and you get two seconds for him because the Blackhawks were good enough to win a cup without him, but he was there, so they get the second-round pick. Like, if you can combine all of it, it's a great trade. I just... Like, they were considered useful players at the time. Were they? <laughs> eh. Zach Ronaldo was a known bad player. People thought he was good, though. Like, look, I agree with you. I don't think he was useful. I think he's a negative value player. But clearly Don Sweeney disagreed. Yeah, and Hex, well. even Hexall, like, we're going to give Hexall credit for the trade, and we should. Awesome trade. Getting a third-round pick for Zach Ronaldo is brilliant. But people do forget that he signed Ronaldo to an extension before he trading did. him. He did. So clearly Hexall thought he had some value as well. Listen, if you have 11 really good forwards, I wouldn't mind Zach Ronaldo getting seven minutes a night. Well, that was the funny thing going back to... Uh, no, he's like, playing I, with I, fucking Sean Couturier. Well, I, I don't know. Did you did you listen to the, the PDO cast show I did with Dmitry Filipovich? We did the... Uh, I the did two, not. I doubt. We did the, we did the, 2000, uh, the 2012 Penguins Flyer series. We specifically did game three. But I, I watched that game and I watched games one and two in the lead up to that so I could speak intelligently about the series, about those games, and create a good podcast. But the thing that still to this day cracks me up is you go through that that team's forward court, and it was just like like stud after stud after stud. You had, I think I looked at it, you had eight guys who at one point in their career were a, were a first-line caliber player. And then you had Matt Reed, who uh, they, they say this in the uh, – in the broadcast a lot during that series, he led all rookies in goal scoring that year. So that was like Matt Reed at his best. You had Max Talbot, who was quite good still and actually had his best scoring season that year. James Van Riemsdyk's on that team too. He's heard at the beginning of that series, but he's on that team. So there's 11 forwards right there. And then who else is on that team? Zach fucking Ronaldo. <laughs> Laviolette was still like, you have like Claude Giroux, Yarmer Yager, Danny Briere, Sean Couturier, Braden Shen, Jake Voracek, like all these great players and then great depth players. And then Zach Ronaldo is still on that team. Scott Hartnell in his prime. Like, why was Zach Ronaldo playing on that team? Energy, <laughs> baby. And that's the last team to win a playoff series, Charlie. <laughs> Gotta have uh, that grit. You oh need that grit. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, yeah, so that's that. Uh, are we done? 
we're yeah, we're done. Save 226 for next week. We'll look back at some more old takes and predictions and talk about how we were right and or wrong. We might have a surprise for you next week, too. Don't want to spoil it yet, but we might have something for you. Uh, that's it. I think that is all the time we have for you on BSH Radio this week. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks for hanging out. If you haven't already, you know the drill. Hit that subscribe button. Search Broad Street Hockey wherever there are podcasts. You'll find us. Hit subscribe. Give us good reviews. Give us those thumbs up. Tell your friends. We're pumping out content while we're quarantined. You'll enjoy it. I promise. My name is Bill Matz for Kelly and Charlie. Have a great week, everybody. Are you ready to talk about sports?